Good morning, everybody. Morning, guys. Morning, Sam. Morning, guys at the back. Morning, everybody at home. It's so good to be with you. It's an honor to be sharing this morning. And um, what I'm going to do this morning is, over the next couple of weeks, this week and next week, Jonathan and I are sharing. And what we're going to be talking about is in a period of time where we're hearing this phrase, the rule of six, and we're hearing continual, you know, restrictions. We're hearing continual limitations, which are all good and right and to help serve us as a nation and stay healthy. We're going to be exploring what it means for us as a church to remain liberated, to remain liberated and restorative in the face of limitation. Where there is limitation, how can we remain liberated? And so these next couple of weeks are devoted to that because the scriptures tell us that it is for freedom that Christ set us free. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? So wherever we are, we're free. Paul was probably at his freest when he was bound in chains. He, uh, he spoke of singing to the Lord. He spoke of confessing the truth of the gospel, leading people to, to the good news of Jesus when he was bound in chains. So we want to spend time saying, yes, we are in a season of external limitation, but are we not more than ever given the opportunity to have internal liberation? And so I'm very excited about it. And there's a couple of scriptures I want to dig into this morning. I'm going to be, you don't need to put it up yet, but I'm going to be looking at Luke 24. Um, that's going to be the passage we're hanging about in. So if you want to open your Bibles to a passage and get ready, then that's the one. Um, I'm going to kick off, though, with, with a phrase that we use quite a lot in, in church life and just being followers of Jesus. I heard this, this, this phrase used so much before I knew where it came from in the scriptures. And it's this, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am also. Where two or three gather in my name, I am present. You've heard that. It's from the book of Matthew chapter 18. And we're in this season, we're in this period of time where we have this, this phrase, the rule of six, Right? We're allowed in different contexts to meet as six people. And obviously, um, th this service is recorded, coming out on Sunday. Things may change. Things change every day. But at the moment, that's a phrase we've really been listening to and has been kind of instructed to us. And uh, it's so easy to see this season as defined by what we can't do rather than what we can do. And where I want to go this morning is exploring the fact that truly, when we gather as two, we gather as three, we meet with Jesus. And this, this scripture is so powerful because it, it isn't about a prayer meeting. It isn't about gathering together in worship. Matthew 18, if you read it, is really Jesus instructing us in terms of how we become reconciled in relationship. So if you go to Matthew 18, the, the, the section, the verses just before Matthew 18, 20, in your Bibles, they'll read something like, uh, it could be restoration in the, ch in the church. Um, it could be reconciliation between brothers in the church. It's actually about restoring relationship. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so when he, t when he says, where two or three gather in my name, I'm present, he's actually saying, when two people come together to reconcile, I am present. It's not about a prayer meeting. I, I heard that in prayer meetings. Two or three of us are gathered, so let's pray in Jesus here. It's actually very practical. Jesus is saying, and he's actually kind of quoting something from Deuteronomy, where you come together for reconciliation, I am present. Now, is he saying, I'm not there, and then I am there? Of course not. The, Lord's is the, uh, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He permeates every single corner of creation. What he's saying is, when you come together for the purpose of relationship, I am very apparent. 
you will acknowledge me in your mess in a way you might have not done before. And I can testify to it. I can testify to it personally when I've reconciled with a friend, when I've pursued relationship. There is something of God that I find in that place because God himself exists in an eternal state of relationship. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has never not been relationship. So when two or three gather in relationship, it's the clearest image of God himself. So when we're together as twos and threes, we represent God himself. We are made in his image. And Matthew 18 is so powerful because he's saying, I don't want any division amongst you. I don't want any division amongst you. If there's an offense, deal with it. And when you come together, you'll bear witness to my presence. You need one another. You need each other. Sam, I need you. You need me. We need each other to truly see God. We talked about this in the Justice series. We need each other because we're all stamped with his image. We're all defined by his image. So when I'm with you, James, I see something of God that I don't see anywhere else. There's a presentness of Jesus amongst us in twos and threes because we're bearing witness to him. I think that's amazing. So we can't gather in a congregation, but we can meet wherever he is present. Right? We can't gather like we would normally. We have union, which is phenomenal. It's so good. And please, please come along. You'll see just what a special time it is. But there are restrictions of how and where we can meet. But we can meet wherever he is present. And where is he not present? <laughs> where isn't he? Right? And that's what I want to dig into this morning. I want to change our mindsets from what we can't do to what we can do. Sometimes we, we sort of we devalue what it means to sit over a meal table with one another in comparison to my, perhaps what we feel when we're in this room together. But there's a tangible presence of God that is only accessible across the meal table. And I hope that in this season we begin seeing the meal table and other contexts of meetings in these smaller groups as sacred acts of worship and prayer without having to sing songs or say, dear Lord and amen, just recognizing where two or three exist in relationship so he is present. Amen? Christ in me, the hope of glory. I, that's true, right? Christ is in me and it's the hope of, hope of glory. Christ in Andy is the hope of glory. So when I'm with Andy, I'm bearing witness to the hope of glory in a way that I can't on my own. I, I love it. That's, that's a greeting that we could actually have with one another. It sounds super mystical, but our faith is mystical. To say to one another, <laughs> I recognize Christ in you. It's not just Andy that I'm talking to, or James that I'm talking to, or Dom, or Phil at the back that I'm talking to. I'm interacting with Christ in you. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. When I'm interacting with you, I'm interacting with Christ in you. So I've been thinking about this for a little while and just thinking, you know, where is there a point in the scriptures that this is so evident? My mind was kind of going around it. I thought, you know what? The road to Emmaus, right? There's this, there's this story that tells us about two people that were walking upon this road and they had this phenomenal encounter with Jesus. So let's turn there. Let's read this. This is Luke uh, 24, and I'm going to read from verse 13. And just very, very quickly, the context of the scripture is this is post crucifixion. Jesus has died. And the disciples whose journey we're about to join, they are living in the, in the wake of his death and in the grief of you know, what they feel in losing a friend, losing their teacher, losing Jesus. They're sad and they're disappointed. 
and they're leaving Jerusalem. One theologian puts it like this. They were uh, between what was and what wasn't yet, right? They were leaving Jerusalem and they were walking. They didn't know where they were going to go next. I mean, how would you if your expectation was this man, Jesus, was going to lead you into this whole new kind of liberation and this whole new place of being, and then he's dead, right? And so that's where the journey uh, begins. Luke 24 verse 13 says this. That very day, the two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that happened. While they were talking, oh, I love this. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, right? So they're just walking along the road. They're talking about what has happened. And then it's as if this pathway kind of meets their road and Jesus joins it. And suddenly the two become three and Jesus is walking along with them. Jesus drew near to them, verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. For the sake of time, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop throughout these scriptures and just kind of throw out some thoughts that I think apply to us. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They were walking disappointed, probably disillusioned, deep in their grief, talking about a pain that they just experienced. Jesus comes next to them. These are the disciples of Jesus mourning the death of Jesus, and Jesus comes next to them, and then it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, recognizing the very person that they were grieving. Why? I don't believe, and if you dig into some of the scholarship on this passage, it's pretty apparent, this isn't saying that God prevented them from seeing Jesus. That's not what was happening here. This is, uh, this is something far more specific to what it means to walk out disappointment and walk out a season of pain. Their eyes were kept from seeing Jesus because they weren't capable of it in that moment. They weren't looking in the right way. They didn't have eyes to see Jesus in that moment. I'll put it this way, just to make it real practical. I, um, I'm not a car guy. I've never been a car guy. I've never been into cars, didn't really understand cars. Uh, whenever there'd be conversations about like favorite cars, I would just mute myself or just say something ridiculous, much like when Jonathan and I talk about football. Um, and I'd learned to drive this year and I got a car and, um, you know, I realized that, you know, you'd get in a car in the morning and the windscreen is like pretty difficult to see through if it's sort of misty and cold. And it's taken me a little while to realize how you demystify the window quickly. Which means, for a period of time, I was driving with pretty limited vision um, and, and, you know, pretty dangerously. So I'd be driving and like, man, how do you like, I'm like windscreen wipers on a dry, dry windscreen. And, uh, you know, peering through a little, a little gap. This isn't the case anymore. I'm safe out there on these roads. But looking through a limited gap and I literally had, had restricted vision of the road until I learned, you know, turn up the AC and demystify the windows. So, um, but that, that kept coming to me when I think about this. But their eyes were kept from seeing him. Their lens was so defined by their pain and their disappointment that they didn't have the faith to see who was walking next to them. It's really about how we see. How we see defines what we see. So if my windscreen is misty, I just cannot see the road. My eyes are kept from seeing the road. It's not that it's impossible, it's just limited, I can't do it. 
And I wonder how much we might relate to that this year, a year of loss and disappointment and confusion and unmet expectations and dreams that our eyes have just, the lens of our eyes has just become slightly mystified that perhaps like these disciples, we can't see that which is so obvious for us to see. The scriptures in Hebrew says that faith comes by seeing, right? Have I got that right? Sorry, faith comes by hearing, yeah. Thank you, James. That's what, we, we need each other. We need each other. Faith doesn't come by seeing, faith comes by hearing. The reason that's so important is just because it's apparent and it's blatant, as we're gonna see more in the story, blatant in front of me, doesn't mean, doesn't guarantee I have the faith to see it. Faith comes by choosing what I'm gonna see in a situation. When Jesus walks into the house of the little girl who's passed away and resurrects her from the dead, he didn't walk in to see the, the apparent, blatant, physical potential for a resurrection. That wasn't what was in front of him. He was looking from a whole different vantage point. That's why when we pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we can't look at the earth when we pray that prayer because we won't see something to give us the faith to pray for it. We have to look elsewhere. We have to hear what heaven is saying. That's why Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. I only go where he tells me. I only listen to his voice. And that defines what I'm going to do next, right? And so let me keep on going with the scripture. And so the, the eyes are kept from seeing him. And then he said to them, Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. That's what the scripture says. One of them named Cleopas, if, if you haven't heard that name before, there, there is one reference to that name. Um, it's in the book of John, and we're told, told about Cleopas's wife, and she's actually at the cross. So Cleopas is one of the disciples. You've got to remember, Jesus had many followers beyond the, beyond the 12. And um, so he's one of the disciples. Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things we have happened, there, that, to know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, Jesus, this is brilliant. Jesus said, what things? What's been going on? What things? He's a genius. And they said to him, concerning, just, just think about this, right? Jesus doesn't actually, this isn't a different Jesus. He's not wearing a mask, right? And they said to him, it's, oh, it's concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. We had hoped that Jesus was going to come through for us. We had hoped that something was going to happen that didn't end up happening. Can anybody relate to that? We had hoped that this would happen. The first sermon that I did in lockdown was on hope. <laughs> and it was just after Kara, I was talking about Kara being in the hospital and I talked about hope and, and suffering producing hope. And I was just struck by it of like, there's certain things I've hoped for since that sermon that haven't come to pass in the way that I expected. Maybe you can relate. I had hoped, I had hoped, I had hoped that this would happen. And it gets even more poignant when they follow up with, but it is now the third day since these things had happened. 
These are the disciples of Jesus. What had Jesus been prophesying throughout his ministry? On the third day, as it was with Jonah in the whale, on the third day, you can tear the temple down and in three days. It is now the third day, just go with me on this, it's the third day and what we had hoped for hadn't happened because everything that Jesus had told us that would happen would be defined by the third day. On the third day, they had the expectation, if they had got what Jesus was saying, many of them didn't understand, but if they had understood what Jesus was saying, they would have understood him saying, on the third day, I will rise again. So this is a story of two men saying to the resurrected Jesus, we are disappointed because we had hoped that Jesus would have been resurrected on the third day. You can read that and just kind of think, oh, how foolish of these men. But this scripture, the word must become flesh, right? The word is living and active, a double-edged sword that pierces through bone and marrow. It's something for us right now. They were telling the resurrected Jesus that they were disappointed that he wasn't resurrected. How many times have I throughout my life spoken to God about what he hasn't done and what hasn't come through for me? purely because my eyes weren't able to see it. Purely because my eyes weren't able to see it. How many times have things actually gone my way and I just didn't see it? I just didn't have the perspective. I just didn't have the enlightenment. Paul prays in Ephesians, may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened. How many times? John read from Joshua 1. It's such a powerful scripture. Joshua is instructed before going to the fortified cities to take these like Jericho down. He is not called to gather the army and make them stronger and come up with strategy. He's commanded to simply be courageous and meditate. <laughs> Meditation is the act of redefining your perspective. Meditation is choosing to ascend to a higher vantage point and see things from a different place. Joshua's battle wasn't won by the sword, it was won by his perspective. He no longer saw a fortified city as something that was impossible to break through. He had a whole different vantage point. How many times has our eyesight our mindset, the way our heart has been postured and positioned, defined what God has done in a way that was never him. Does this make sense? Are you with me on this? What you, this, is, this is the most basic phrase I could ever say. But what you look at defines what you see. What you look at defines what you see. Check this out. This is from Exodus 14, when the Israelites are leaving Egypt. When Pharaoh drew near, check this out. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes. They're by the Red Sea, right? The people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. So they have just been liberated from Egypt. When they look to the Egyptians and see them and behold them, they begin to fear greatly. What we behold defines what we believe. They had the opportunity to be in the most 
peaceful and liberated place that any man or woman could ever be. How? They had just seen God move in miraculous ways over Egypt, leaving, bringing them out. He brought, he brought the locusts. He brought all the different signs. Pharaoh, you must let my people go. And now they've gone. They've left, right? They've left. God has done the miracle. They've left. Now it's just an ocean that's got apart. I mean, this is a generation of slaves that have left. That's easy work, right? But as soon as they look to the Egyptians, as soon as they behold the Egyptians, they change what they believe is possible for what God could do next. What we behold defines what we believe, which is why we have to meditate on his word, which is why we have to engage in our spiritual um, perspective. We cannot live just day to day thinking that, Swiping down on the news and just dipping into the scriptures for a couple of minutes is going to give us any different perspective than anybody else on the planet. We have to meditate, have our minds permeated by a different perspective with a different word. That's the only way that Christ and me, the hope of glory, can escape through the shell of this man and actually influence people around us. Now more than ever, we must meditate. I've actually created an app. I've shared this a few times. It's completely free. It's a charity. It's just called Live From Rest. And it's an app that is helping people meditate in the way of Jesus. Because meditation might feel like a strange word for you and it might be difficult to, to digest. And you can download the app for free, Android, iOS, Live From Rest, and get into a rhythm of meditating on the scriptures. Not just reading them and studying them, but meditating on them. Allowing them to actually per permeate through your being and redefine what you see. So these guys are stopped from seeing Jesus in, in front of them just because of the perspective that they had. The very thing they hoped for was right in front of them. It was there the whole time. 28, verse 28, we're going to jump, jump down a couple of verses. Verse 28 says this. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. <laughs> this, is, this is Jesus again. Don't think that Jesus is this serious, solemn man. Who, who are you guys talking about? Oh, Jesus. No, nah, I never heard of him. Um, check this out. They drew near to the village where they were going. And he acted, he acted as if he wasn't going any further. He acted like he wasn't going any further. But they urged him to stay, strongly saying, stay with us. It's evening and the day is now far spent, right? So what does this say to me? Because this isn't just like a story. This is alive. This is something for now. What does this say to me? God is everywhere. He's with us. He's present. He never leaves the room. He's always here. But he wants to be invited in. Andy, I love that song that you've been singing, a new song um, about his presence and how present his presence is. Um, he's always present. He can't be anywhere else than where he is and he is everywhere can i ascend the heavens can i go to the depths uh no you're there you're everywhere in him we live and move and have our being but it is when we invite him into our space into where we live into our perspectives that's when everything changes why because he is a gentleman <laughs> he is kind he doesn't just break down the door he knocks on it and he waits for us to answer he invites us into our lives so that we can actually be restored and renewed. That's how gracious he is. He acts like he's going along, so he gives them the opportunity to invite them, invite him in. I really like that. 
Because that means we have a God who lingers, a God who waits for us, a God who gives us the opportunity to invite him. All right, the last section of this. So he went in to stay with them, verse 30. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Oh, I love him. Then he went. <laughs> and then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, right? Oh, it's like the end of a film where the kind of twist happens and you're like, oh, I knew it was, I knew there was something, there was something coming at the end of this story. I knew it. There was an intrigue in them the whole time, but their eyes were opened when he broke the bread, right? I called up my friend Yosef, who's Jewish, lives in Israel, called him up the other night. I said, Yosef, tell me about, from a Jewish perspective, tell me about breaking bread. And he said, well, yeah, it's not your kind of, very civilized, you know, English wafer breaking of communion in a service. No, no, no. This is the feast, right? This is the family around the table. This is ripping apart the bread to eat it. This is, this is sharing a feast with one another. So Jesus, a guest in the house, it was usually, usually just for the father or for the oldest son who had the honor of breaking the bread and blessing it. Blessed are you, O God, who brings forth bread from the earth, right? But Jesus did it. So Jesus was honored as a guest. Oh, check this out. And he broke the bread, and then their eyes were opened. And there's something about this. They honored him. They invited him again to break the bread. They honored him. And in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened because perhaps they'd bear witness to Jesus doing that before. Perhaps there was this remembrance to a time where Jesus said, when you break the bread, remember me. And maybe when he broke the bread, they remembered him. When you break the bread, remember me. Remember my body that was broken for you and given to you. And when Jesus broke the bread, their eyes were opened, their disappointment lifted, their disillusion drifted away, and they saw before them the bread of life eating with them. And then it all made sense once again. This is my very simple message to us this morning. Despite this season of restriction, limitation, disappointment, and pain, there is a God who walks with us. And let me get real specific. There is a God who eats with us. There is a God who feasts with us. And it is in our coming together, as we are currently allowed to do, sitting at the table in twos, threes, fours, sitting at the table and eating together and feasting together that we can remember who he is and restore within us that sense of hope and joy and expectation for the gospel to do its work in our times. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. It is in simple acts of feasting that we, that we honestly stand on holy ground and we honestly worship and pray with one another. Psalm 23 says this, you prepare a feast for me in the midst of my enemy. God is rolling out feasts. That's where we celebrate who he is. So could you please, church, could you please in this time eat together? We're allowed to do that, right? We're allowed to eat together, 
Can we eat together and feast together and be reminded of who he is? Could you invite someone over to your house that you may never have invited over before just to see Christ in them like you've never seen in anybody else? Could you remember together who he is and what he's doing? I'm just going to pray very, uh, very quickly and then we're going we're gonna to wrap up with, with, with a song. You can just prepare your hearts for, for worship. Prepare your hearts to sing again. This is taken from a liturgy um, that, is, that is called Feasting with Friends. I'm just going to read the end of it, and I'm going to post the, the link to this liturgy in, uh, in the chat on, on, on the Sunday morning meeting. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their hearts acts of war. When we celebrate the feast, when we eat together, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. The joy of fellowship. We can fellowship together, church. The joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends, new and old, and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. Amen. Just want to do a real quick shout out to Edmund. Edmund has started something beautiful called Table Talk. It's on our Facebook group where he's just posting insights and reflections and he's doing exactly this. And Edwin, we love you and the perspective that you're bringing around this. So if you're not on the Facebook group, join it. Let's feast together in every single way that we can. Let's be together. Let's remember him. Amen.